Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I'm your host, Josiah. And I'm your co-host, Byron. This is our long-form show. There's been a little bit of confusion. We do a weekly short-form show because apparently we talk for a long time. And so instead of putting this out every week, we're going to do this maybe every other week or so, where we interview people that are worth hearing the stories of. This is a show not about me or Byron, but about the guests that we have. We're doing a cycle. We're going to have nuns and duns, and then two weeks later... We're going to interview seasoned saints. So that is going to be our show today. And then after that, we're still going to be interviewing in another two weeks millennial pastors to get their take on what they think about our previous guests. So today is our first seasoned saint show. But before we get to our seasoned saint and before we get to our sponsor, Byron, we have forgotten in, in, in our first uh, long form episode to apologize. Is there anything worthwhile to apologize for? Oh, maybe in the short and the hashtag bless versions, just the bickering that we all do, but or just our general. I think it's kind immaturity. of immaturity, but yeah. Sorry for being ourselves, I suppose. We're sorry. <laughs> Moving right along. Here's a word from our sponsor. <laughs> On today's show, we have our first seasoned saint. Ron, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Ron Fay. Well, I was supposed to ask you your full name, but I'm going to say it. Ron Fay. How do you like that that title label, Seasoned Saint? How do you feel about that? Well, I'm not the one who makes me a saint, so I can deal with it. So you're okay with that? That's, yeah. Is, is it something that's? I mean, I I just don't want to. I try to I try to honor the fact that you know you've been doing this for a while. That you're not a spring chicken anymore, but I don't want to be insulting and call you like an old crotchety person or something like that because we're <laughs> going to get to that. Uh, stereotypical breakdown later. So season saint is an okay label for you? That'll work for now. <laughs> for now. <laughs> yeah, we'll insult you later, apparently. <laughs> no, we don't want to insult you. We want to we wanna attack labels because okay. we label things. But people getting, have names, and we do that tongue-in-cheek, though. Getting back on track. <laughs> We've already got your name, but we were wondering if you could tell us your age and your location. I am almost 71. I'll be 71, 71 in a couple of weeks, and I live in Prescott, Arizona, with all the other retired people. That's amazing. And me. And Byron. Oh, Byron. <laughs> yeah. We actually grew up in that area, and he's not joking. That is a retirement hub. Uh, but before you retired, where did you last work, Ron? I worked for 20 years at Point Loma Nazarene University. But what did you do? I, the last 17 and a half years, my job was director of church relations. The previous two and a half years, I was uh, director of student ministries and uh, a mission uh, program called Project Yes. Man. So 20 years in, uh, in, in some form of academic work. And in your retirement, though, this, since uh, me and Brian both know you pretty well, we know that you've kept busy i don't know if you've ever really retired you just continue to do things whether or not you have a salary is kind of what it seems like to me this is true i don't get paid (laughs) (laughs) one of the most recent things you did was you decided to lend your editing eye to something that i did and man it seemed like that was kind of an experience it was (laughs) (laughs) i can't remember so ron you had me in your sunday school class one sunday morning and you said something about how i don't know how to use some sort of tense for something. What, what was the biggest typo in my book? What was the most common thing that I, that I was poorly, uh, obviously bad at grammar with? 
Well, that, it may not have been uh, what you were the poorest at, but you didn't have any understanding of subject-verb agreement. And I probably still don't. <laughs> Could you please explain to me what that is? <laughs> well, well, you, you uh, would be talking in plural and use verbs that were in singular. Oh, uh, yeah. You know what? I'm pretty sure my wife pointed that out the first dozen times and then gave up on it because I, I, apparently my brain is broken, but, but you were one of the biggest editors of this book. And I, I just, for everyone to know, I wanted to say thank you. I wanted everyone to hear that, but it wasn't a small undertaking. And truly I am very grateful for all of the work you decided to offer to me and to even let me come and speak in your uh, Sunday school class to people that, I may have included in some of the stories I shared in that book. I thought that was really awesome. So thank you for, for doing that, Ron. Oh, you're welcome. That's great. Byron, were you there for that? Did you get to hear that? I can't yes, remember. Yes, I was there. Yeah, that was good times. It was interesting to maybe have Ron point out that some of the people that were in that very classroom yelled at you and me numerous times and that I wrote a book about it. Well, the best part for me was that a couple, there's one person in particular, you wrote a story about, in the book and it's not a good story like <laughs> you were honest with what happened and like he didn't come out well in the story but after on that sunday when you talked about the book he came up and talked about how proud he was of you and he's all excited and he bought a book and it was hilarious because like he has no idea that you were talking about him yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I I wasn't sure how to take all of that. It was really interesting. It was. It I was, thought it was amazing. I was yeah. laughing the whole time. But yeah, I know you knew exactly <laughs> what was going on with the stories and who was written about. But and to be fair, he probably doesn't remember it because it wasn't a big deal to him. And you know, it doesn't mean he's a bad person or anything. No. But, no. Well, plus he's old too, so the memory changes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, memory changes. That's if I recall, though, he he seemed pretty old at the time, and we were in high school. So that's true. <laughs> we're about double the age we were then, and uh, yeah. Well, speaking of age and divisions and breakdowns of generations, part of the show and that book was born out of this kind of what seems to be a schism within church or faith communities between young and old, and part of it seems to be. Uh, even more compounded by stereotypes and poorly labeling or dismissing entire groups of people based on their age and assumptions that we make about it. And with every show, we like to have some fun playing a game to kind of address point blank some of these stereotypes. So once again, I'm going to put a disclaimer out there because last week we probably should have had a stronger disclaimer for our <laughs> nuns and our duns game break. But since we're expanding our guest list, we're going to do different types of games where we address some of these stereotypes and, and uh, point blank, you know, oppose them because, you know, we label things and that's kind of what we're going to do in a tongue in cheek way, but people have names. So after we're done with that, we will apologize and continue on with our discussion with Ron, but Ron, we're going to play a game called How Much of a Crotchety Old Christian Are You? Does, okay. that, does, yeah. that, does that sound fun? Oh, or... yeah, that sounds appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ron, are you ready to play? I think I am. Okay, let's get started. Oh, this is going to be fun. So once again, I apologize first and foremost, but um, this is... These are all <laughs> questions born of stereotypes young people might have about what I would call a stereo or a seasoned saint, or for this game's purpose, a stereotypical crotchety old Christian. So, Ron, 
question number one. There's only going to be five. Have you ever yelled, get off my lawn to children? No, I don't think I have. <laughs> I have you thought about it, though, <laughs> and just held it back? Uh, well, no, I've actually got on other people's lawn, and I thought they might say that to me, but they didn't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, the stereotype is that, you know, once you get older, you're going to sit on your porch, and if a kid comes and, like, throws a Frisbee on the lawn, they're just going to get yelled at because you messed up their lawn or something well, like that. I have said something to my wife, like, Look at those people walking their dog. They just let their dog take a dump on our lawn. Well, I, I mean, see, I could actually kind of get behind that because nothing is worse than stepping in a dog's mess and then bringing it into your house or the inevitable one of your four children doing that and being oblivious and then tracking it all around the house. Which, Especially when it's not from your dog. Yeah, that's just <laughs> that's injury added to insult. <laughs> well, okay, so, so far you're 0 for 1. We'll score you. Ron, at the end of five, we'll see, stereotypically speaking, how much of a crotchety old Christian you are. So, Byron, go. All right. Question number two. How many times have you complained about the drums being used during Sunday morning worship? Uh, I've never complained about drums being used in Sunday morning worship or any other worship service. Man, we should have had our interns do more research on Ron. We could have gotten him on something. I don't know if we're going to get him on anything. I don't know. So I, I know for a fact that there's churches that maybe all of us have attended where just the drums appearing on the stage led to a month, month's worth of complaints. As well, in, I, I have been in services where the drummer was overpowering and, and, and actually interfering with the music, I thought. But, you know, I didn't complain about it. Well, that's a, I think there's a difference between balancing the worship leading versus just, oh, drums are on stage. That's obviously, you know, equivalating rock and roll with devil worship or whatever, because there's the worship wars of the whenever that was. I don't think it's ever ended, but whenever that started, you know, that's where that question comes from is obviously everyone is opposed to drums if they're over 60. I don't know. What, what would you say, Byron? What's the assumption? Like if you're a certain age and older, you probably don't want drums on the stage. Well, at this point, when I was when I was a teenager, I would have said sixty. But now I'm I would I'd push it to at least seventy, because even then, like, because I mean, my parents are in their sixties, and I don't think they care about it. Maybe. But the the people older than them, like, well, I'll just be honest, the church that Ron and I both attend, you they have had in the past people complain about drums being on stage, but that was years ago. That's not anytime recently. Um. But, like, when we were in high school, Josiah, we, that was a complaint that was a big deal. Yep. Whenever we had, like, a youth worship service or whatever, people would get mad. They'd just see the drums and be like, I can't believe they're letting drums on the stage. Like, that was our church, that stereotypical dumb argument about Wh- drums. Which but. is hilarious because my dad told me about all that stuff back in the day when youth pastors would warn them about the evils of rock and roll music. So, apparently... And sorry, dad, if you're listening to this, but my grandmother was hilarious back in the day. My grandmother's response was she bought my dad stereo headphones so he could plug his stereo headphones into his record player so no one could tell what he was listening to. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question number three, Ron, you're 0 for 2. Apparently, you're not a crotchety old Christian, but we'll see. We'll see if we get you with one of these. When was the last time you started off a lecture, not just a conversation, a lecture to a young person with back in my day? Followed by why the past was better than the present. I have said it uh, not to their face, but to others. <laughs> 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 Back in the day, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
but yeah, I can't remember confronting anyone with that uh, in that way that, you know, my day was better. Although I have thought that many times and have said it to my spouse. So I think that's probably different than actually lecturing, you know, a young person to their face about how, you know, the world's terrible and blah, 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 blah. But I don't know. I don't know, Byron, are we going to score that against him or what? No, because he's not like, like, I don't know. The thing I think is funny about this kind of stuff is like, I've, I've heard people complain about millennials and how we're ruining everything. Um, like things that weren't ours to ruin, like the housing market, for instance. I've heard people complain about how we, like, we don't buy houses. It's, it's going to make another issue. But when we talk about like the last time the housing market was really bad, we were in like high, junior high through like college. Maybe a few of us were out of college. So it's not like we were doing anything. So like when you lecture someone about something they have literally no control over, like that's what I would, you know, and Count I don't think Ron him. would do that because he's too nice of a person. I know. We picked like the nicest season saint in all the land. So he's not going to have, I, I honestly <laughs> was predicting he would not, not get any of these, but well, well that's why I'm thinking. That's why I asked him the one question. Did you think it? Because yeah. <laughs> that, that might be the only way we're going to get him on anything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have had people tell tell me that retired people are ruining the housing market because they're selling their homes in places where they have high mm. high income and they're moving to places like Prescott, Arizona. So, yeah, in this in, in our area, it would be all these people moving from California right. and coming to Arizona, much like what you did. Um. <laughs> yeah, what and, and what the, the, the real estate people here in this area call them CCOs. California cash outs <laughs> and uh, and so they come here and buy property and they pay cash which and they pay a higher price than the locals would pay and so the mm. property is going up rapidly which the locals don't like so so it's anyway. like an inflation of, of real estate because of CCOs huh uh-huh interesting well I'll be honest it's really hard to find a recent uh, decent rent around here so I don't know well, Byron, we're exactly just going to blame that, you. But... We're going to blame you for being a millennial on that one. That's obviously your fault. Well, I so. mean, it's my fault. I own all the buildings in town, <laughs> and I charge all the rent. So I don't know why I'm so broke for overcharging on rent, but somehow I don't have any money still. Moving on. Question four. <laughs> all right. Question four. How often do you call the youth pastor to complain about all of these youths? <laughs> well, I, I call the youth pastor to encourage him. And tell him he's doing a great job and bring more in if you can. You've never called him to complain? No. Man. Byron, how many times would you have someone call you to complain about teenagers when you were a youth pastor? Um, honestly, in the, the years I was a youth pastor, the three different churches, I only had a few conversations like that. But I also didn't get paid like anything in most of my places. So I think they didn't want to scare me off. Well, but I, would, I would say I had like maybe 10 or, or like memorable conversations about kids being inappropriate or doing something they should have been doing at the church, you know, or whatever, bothering somebody. I had a neighbor once complain to me about neighborhood kids who didn't I didn't even know them. And they were in like the, on the property doing something. And I was like, well, I don't know those kids. They shouldn't have been on the property, but I, I can't control that. Like. If they're doing something bad, you can call the police, but those aren't my youth. Those aren't my kids. Sorry. I was at a church where probably weekly I had at least one, if not, there's, there's like a rotation of two or three people that would ask about something, <laughs> complain about something, point out something that the youth did or left behind or left a light on or whatever, never like a never ending circle of these youths. But well, 
I will say, like, the leaving the lights on and doing stuff like that, I minimized that by always being the last person out, and I, I made sure that stuff didn't happen. Oh, so did I, but it didn't matter. Yeah. It was just if someone left it on, it was automatically the Oh, it was, uh, obviously as a yeah. teenager. Was that your first uh, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> question number five. Ron, you're 0 for 4, I think, right? Are we scoring this, Byron? I can't yeah. yeah. He's, he's so far, he's not very crotchety at all. Yeah. So. Well, I, I joined a senior adult softball league here in town, and it's not unusual for me to be 0 for 4. <laughs> oh, man. Ron, killing it. All right, so question five, Ron. I think we're going to go 0 for 5. I don't know if we've ever had a guest do this for our stupid stereotype games, but how regularly, Ron, do you say kids these days while shaking your head? Uh, I don't do that. I, I, I have a whole lot of empathy for the kids these days. I I'm glad I'm not being raised these days. Man, we failed, Byron. We didn't get him on a single stereotypical crotchety old Christian stereotype. Again, I think that's really Ron's fault because he's really nice. <laughs> he's just a nice guy. It's, it's, it's Ron's it's fault also, for being really nice. It's also one of the reasons why he's on the podcast. <laughs> because he's encouraging of young people. So this might be our worst game ever because, I mean, for all of our – you know, quote unquote, season saints, cross the old Christians, whatever, because the people who are encouraging young people tend to just be nice people. Absolutely. So we might not do well in this game anytime we play it with any season saint, but we'll see how it goes. Which I'm perfectly okay with. Ron. Yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously we didn't think you're a crotchety old Christian, but the whole point of this segment is to confront stereotypes. Cause I think there's a lot of misrepresentation of young people, but I don't think we, me and Byron specifically have, touched on the fact that there's probably just as much misrepresentation from young people about seasoned saints, I, I will call them. And that's probably a point of contention, especially if you consider faith communities. And there's just kind of a really unique thing, um, a component about faith communities that I find super intriguing, which kind of led us to to want to talk to seasoned saints on that show. Is, and that's, I don't know if there's another entity I don't know if there's another opportunity gathering point in community where young and old intentionally hang out with one another and there doesn't have to be a, a, you know, a genetic reason or a I'm getting paid to be here reason for it. Like there's very few, if, if any, any other opportunities in life for people to gather when, you know, Ron could be a 70, 71 year old and me and Byron can be, a are you 32? How old are we? 32? yeah we're 32 just like we go and regularly <laughs> hang out with people that have that age gap that's that's kind of weird i don't know if there's another i don't know if there's another place in society where we do that i can't I think mean, i don't know either i know there's in politics you get some of that stuff but it's, oh that's true yeah it's, it's probably local. usually not as positive no but i would also say they're probably doing it for monetary gain so yeah there's very few spaces in society where I think we do it on purpose just to spend time with each other. So with all of our guests, and I think it's going to be especially interesting to ask you these questions, we ask some kind of general questions, particularly about the church and your involvement with it. We've asked all of our millennial pastors from our first season what they thought the church was, and we asked our nun done, and it, once again, it's N-O-N-E. When my wife listened to our episode, she said, what what are you he's not a female what are you talking about interviewing nuns because she thought apparently we were talking to catholic nuns on this <laughs> podcast but no n-o-n-e-s meaning non-affiliated or no faith affiliation or duns people that have stopped going to church so it's just kind of interesting for me and byron and hopefully for our listeners to to get a feel for what 
what our thoughts and feelings are about the church, um, what our guests' thoughts and feelings are about the church. So we're going to ask you some questions about that if you're okay with it, Ron. Yeah, I'm good. So we're going to start the, the first one, which is probably the most important to, to begin with, is in your own words, what is the church? Well, I think it's plural, and it's the people who have been redeemed by Jesus. Hmm. Hmm. There's a trend there, Ron. I don't know if you've uh, heard many of our other podcasts, but it's I haven't weird. heard any of them. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever been on a podcast. Yes, that makes me happy. Well, every... you're basically a millennial now because <laughs> we're all on podcasts. Honorary, you're an honorary millennial. <laughs> I've heard a lot about him, but hmm. never never clicked into one before. From from your grandkids or? No, I just every... I've been hearing a lot about from you guys and others. Huh. And, you know, people that I've, I've talked to, my, well, my grandson this last week said, oh, I was listening to a podcast with Francis Chan. And so, you know, so I know I've heard him say it. I've heard a lot of people talk about it. Well, they're definitely pretty popular uh, media currently going on. And without, almost without exception, I don't know if a single one of our guests in the first season talked about the building. Um, but almost without exception, every one of our millennial pastor guests basically said it was people and they always said people with some relationship to Jesus. So maybe there's more that, that we have common ground wise than we think. Cause I, I, can you think of a single one that said anything about the building Byron? Um, yeah, somebody said it was partially that because that's where we worship together. Yeah. But they emphasize more the, I think it was Zach Hunt actually. He mentioned the building slightly. It's not like key to him, but he was, it was like, you know, it's a it's a place where we do gather, so it does have some significance to us culturally. But I think he was the only one. Yeah. Well, so. I, I, you know, I when I think of church, a lot of times I'm thinking of a church building. When I'm or when I'm speaking about church, which church do you go to, or where do you attend church? That's generally talking about some sort of a meeting, gathering facility. Yeah. And so, I, you know. I, I, it's not exclu- I don't always think of the church a- exclusive of a building. Uh, no, a, a lot of times, it in- most of the time, I would say it includes that, but not yeah. always. Yeah, it just it seems interesting that there's kind of this, you know, if if you would talk to a person outside looking in, a lot of times they just see all the different churches on Church Row as you know, like oh, that's the Circle K Church, that's the AMPM Church, that's the Seven Eleven Church, and we're just kind of fighting for real estate, but. If we maybe kind of reimagine church as people that do happen to meet at places, but the people are the more important priority, that could be interesting shifts that could take place in how we church. Yeah, uh, I think I think you can attend a church without being the church. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the difference would be a cultural versus theological understanding of the church. Hmm. So, like, we talk about church, meaning this is the church I attend. I'm a part of this church. I, I go there. I worship there, I whatever. Um, but I think when you ask people, especially people who have a theological background, what the church is, they, they tend to think of it as the body of Christ or something along those lines. A con- people with a connection to Jesus. So I think they're both relevant, though, to our conversations because we do live in culture, whether we like it or not. So next question, Ron, has to do with why you're still a part of it. But I'm going to ask a little more. Uh, a little more follow-up questions to that, because uh, I do want to know why you're still a part of it, but I'm also curious, um, 
when you were becoming an adult, you know, when adolescence ended. Um, so I, to do math, when did you turn 20? What decade was that? <laughs> I turned 20 in the 60s. So there was maybe some, some research that I'm curious to hear your take on it, but there was maybe some of that, you know, rage against institutionalism and some of the first pendulum swings of, of people who were coming of age and could choose whether or not they went to church, that started to happen. And a lot of, a lot of the stuff I've read or, or the research I've looked into shows that pendulum kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger, especially when it comes to the millennial generation. We are perhaps the, the biggest generation to have left church. Um, however, that's defined by research, which is why we're asking these questions. But over, as some estimate, over 60% of millennials left the church. But why, why are you still a part of it? And were people leaving when you were, you know, when your adolescence was ending, when you were starting to become an adult? Yeah, in, in fact, um, there, there was historically in, in, in the evangelical churches in particular, in the late 50s and early 60s, there was a large uh, segment of people who left the church over issues which they would consider to be legalism. The, the rules that you can't do this, you shouldn't do this. And, and there, there's a large number of them who left. And a, but a lot, a lot of them left the conservative or more uh, uh, evangelical conservative churches and went to more liberal churches where the rules weren't as emphasized as much. But they, and some of them left the faith completely, a lot did. But an interesting thing happened at about that time that's when the Jesus movement came started, mm -hmm. and and a whole a whole lot of people in the mid '60s were leaving, like the the highly liturgical churches, the Roman Catholic Church, Episcopal churches that were highly liturgical. They were the people, young people were leaving by the large large numbers, and uh, and then the Jesus movement happened, which was n totally non liturgical. And they were drawn to that. So there was a big surge of people coming in into Christianity and into churches in the late 60s, early 70s in the Jesus movement, which was real interesting. And that continued on for maybe 10 years or so. Isn't that kind of where Calvary Chapel got its start? Yeah, Calvary Chapel. And uh, there was a church up in the peninsula, up in the Bay Area. Ray Sedman was the pastor called the Peninsula Church. And they, they were kind of anti-establishment as far as liturgical. They, they went against the liturgical stuff and a lot more expression, a lot more emotion, mm. a lot more freedom of expression. And there was a huge draw. And plus the change of music, mm. you know, there, that, that point is where they began to include, uh, you know, electric guitars and drums and stuff. There was a couple large groups, music groups. One of them was called Love Song. Oh yeah, my Back parents the, still have their CDs. <laughs> yeah, and and they but they traveled. They were from Calvary Chapel, and uh, and they traveled all around the country. And and then there was also a thing with David Wilkerson in uh, back in New York City, and uh, a big a big movement started out of that uh, uh, out of that ministry back there, which was about the same time, and uh, and it was very Pentecostal, and that was also very contrary to the to the structured churches. And so that, that was a big pendulum swing that way. 
So uh, a Calvary Chapel, would it have been labeled the liberal church that was less legalistic? No, like no, it was very, it would, no, it was very conservative. Huh, uh, okay. But, but, uh, but the, uh, the, the music was very contemporary and their worship style, you know, where people were clapping, people were, uh, uh, you know, raising their hands, doing things that they didn't do in the, in the more liturgical churches. And they'd have people give testimonies out loud in the church mm. service, you know, what God did in my life. Later on, about 20 years later, cardboard testimonies became kind of popular where people would walk across stage and said, you know, I used to do drugs and now I don't. But they'd they hold up like a cardboard sign with their. Yeah. Yeah. Or the sandwich sign. Or they were their head sticking out the top and, and yeah. said, you know, and, and it would be one side of the cardboard would say, I, you know, I, I, I used to do drugs and then turn around and Jesus changed my life on the other side and so it was those kind of things but they were still expressions but they weren't verbal expressions but that all that all happened in those late 60s and so it there were a whole bunch of people that were leaving the faith and leaving churches but then uh, there was a big people who were drawn in at that same time through a different uh, method so where were you in the 60s what were you doing church-wise well, uh, when I went to church uh, very, very faithfully, uh, I, I loved going as where my friends were. I used to hang out at the church all the time uh, because it was so much fun. And, and we had a youth group and then church went through a split. And then my sister and I were the only two in the youth group, which wasn't very fun. But one of the guys there took interest in me and, and, uh, and kind of guided me and helped me, invited me over to his house. He and his wife would have us, me over for uh, dessert after church or whatever and kind of held the thing together and pretty soon things grew but church was a, was a safe place for me and I loved it I loved going and uh, even when it was just me and my sister and uh, and so then things changed but yeah I loved I loved church uh, um can I ask I just, a clarifying question yeah um how old was he compared to you and like he, curiosity I, at this time, I was uh, I was just starting to drive, so I was sixteen, and he was in his thirties. Okay. He, he and his wife were in their thirties. They they had no children. They were both teachers. Gotcha. So was it someone who was not not necessarily like that super young, like what we kind of think of like for for our generation anyway, the youth pastor, like in their early twenties. This is someone who's a little bit more established, taking an interest in you. So that's cool. Okay. Yeah. Then, so we do have another question. Then, um, with all this all this shifting and everything that's going on. Did you ever consider uh, leaving? Yeah, I did. I, and I went around and I visited some of the other churches. Um, I, I visited some churches that had a different worship style. And I dated a girl who was Catholic for three years. And so I went to mass with her uh, some. And then I dated another girl later. Everywhere I went, I had a relation, actually, with the girls that I did. <laughs> <laughs> but you never considered leaving the church altogether, though. It was always just a possibility of a different tradition or a different style. Right. But it was never all together. Okay. Yeah. And I, I like to go to the different things with the different styles. It was some of it I didn't quite understand, but uh, it was it was in, interesting and intriguing to me. Huh. That's nice. curious, because obviously the storyline today that we grapple with most is that uh, most of our age group has left. So it's just curious to see the shift that may have been taking place from the 60s into the 70s, 80s, 90s. 2000s um i always wonder uh about that whole 
uh, what was it? Woodstock was in 69. Is that right? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So it was, there That's was correct. Yeah. I there wasn't was, there, but uh, yeah. you weren't there. You didn't <laughs> no. go out to New York to Woodstock. Yeah. Well, people call that what the cultural revolution. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I, I would say there was definitely with the drugs and, and the free love and uh, the things that part of it, it was a rebellion against the, 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 the norms. Yeah. Against the establishment, right? Right. Uh huh. Yeah, because I always find that curious. Because I don't think millennials lack that desire to rage against establishment. Even curiously enough, being in an establishment, I just by default, I, I don't know. I feel like I have to rail against establishment norms as well. So I don't know if that's something that skips generations or, or what. Because I don't think the all the generations previous uh, were like that. But. Uh, that's just really interesting uh, to me to consider the history of where we're going. So if with your permission, Ron, I want to dive a little bit uh, deeper into this church then versus now. Does that sound fun? Sure. And instead of uh, maybe being baited into a was church better then or now sort of a debate, uh, I, I mean, I, I still want to know what we, what you would consider good changes or things you wish we still did, Ron. But that's kind of that's kind of how I want to start this conversation is what are some things that that maybe you wish we still did um, as a church that we don't anymore? Is there anything you can think of off the top of your head that's particularly frustrating for you that that is something we've lost as the church? Well, uh, let me I can only frame it from my own experience. Sure. Uh, My when I was when I was that that teenager and. when the youth group, which was small and then larger and then small again, it, it was so great to do a, spend a lot of time together. And uh, we used to have Sunday night services, which I don't necessarily think we need to have. But the good thing was the youth would always get together after the Sunday night service or uh, sometimes before, but usually after and go to someone's house and hang out and have, you know, snacks and, and uh and do uh, crazy games out of uh, some books they called ideas books from new specialties. And, uh, and the parents were involved in hosting that. And you go to a different home all the week, different weeks, at least in my experience. And that was, that was a great thing where we got acquainted with the other young people's families and their parents. And they all were involved in our lives that the, the parents of the kids who went to church, and then they welcomed all those who didn't, uh, but those who didn't have families, church, of course, they didn't host those kind of things. Hmm. So from the young people's perspective, that was rich, I thought. And I don't know if we, we do much of that. I don't see that happening that much in the churches where I, I guess, hmm. speaker or the churches that I attend. Uh, I just don't see that kind of camaraderie with young people and their parents as much. You know, what's interesting about that is I think that's been, at least in my experience, culturally kind of shifted to sports. Yeah. Like I, we used to, after every football game on Friday nights, like we would, in high school, we'd go to someone's house and have like, you know, snacks and and food and stuff. And we'd all hang out. Yeah. And parents would come too. Like, so you'd have parents all in one room, all the the team in one room, you know, and our friends. And so it kind of shifted from a church type thing to, uh, what other kind of extracurricular activities you're in? I know that I've heard like stories about people who do band doing the same thing or like uh, people who did like musicals and stuff. They're really tight. They, they, they hang out together as groups a lot and get to know parents. So 
maybe it's just shifted culturally from that from church to something else yeah interesting Uh, but that was part of the church was that interaction of uh you know different age groups and i i I don't see as much of that Uh, there's more compartmentalization where the children do children's things and the youth do youth things and the adults do adult things i was gonna i was gonna ask is that because do you think that shifted in how we function as a church is because of compartmental like you you're you know the kids are in this area the teens are over here the adults worship here do you think that's one of the unfortunate things that came out of that? I think that's part of it. And, and here's another observation. And, you know, I'm not a good uh, philosopher, but I'm an observer. And, uh, and my job at Point Loma was church director of church relations. And so I would be involved in, in a whole bunch of churches, uh, you know, over a year's time. And over the 17 years that I did that, I, I might have been in 600 churches. Wow. You know, oh, wow. And so, and so, and I would just observe, you know, things. And, um, and one of the things I did observe is smaller churches without youth groups, even, even the kind that, or the size of church that didn't have a youth group, the, the youth had, were given more leadership responsibilities in, in worship services and in, you know, being involved in cleaning the church or doing things around the church facility that and most at that time almost every church met in a facility and that was dedicated to church not like a renting a space at a school mm-hmm. and so the the smaller churches gave a lot more leadership to young people and and in the observation that i that happened as i went to point loma the majority of the young people who were called into pastoral ministry had a relationship with their senior pastor. Hmm. The other, a lot of the others wanted to be going to parachurch ministries or missions work or youth ministry or whatever. They had a relationship with their youth pastor or they had gone on a missions trip. And, and so that was their point of reference where they felt God was calling them. And I think a, a lot more of the people who said they were called to be pastors were from the smaller churches who actually knew their pastor personally and actually spent time with their pastor. And so that's an observation that I don't know that that is even, that's a difference between then and now, if it's still that way, I think it might still be that way. Uh, the smaller churches who give young people leadership responsibilities find that they develop their leadership skills better. So you were uh, a lead pastor for how long and where? Because I don't I, think we asked you that before. I, I was a youth pastor for eight years at three different churches. And and then I worked at our headquarters in Kansas City in their youth department while I was in seminary. And then I was a, a lead pastor of one church for 17 years. Hmm. And uh, it was a small church and it was a medium-sized church and it was a larger-sized church. I mean, larger comparatively. I mean, we... When I when I left to go to Point Loma, we were between four and five hundred. So when, when I went there, we were thirty-seven people. When, when were you a youth pastor? I was the youth pastor in the sixties and seventies, early seventies till seventy-five. Seventy-seven is when I first became a pastor. And thus, then from seventy-seven to what is ninety-four? Ninety-five. You were a lead pastor. So during yes. that time, did you have a youth pastor and an associate pastor work for you? Uh, at first, we had we didn't, of course. I didn't even have an office assistant. We had 37 people. And so uh, then we gradually got a part-time. 
assistant in the office to help with uh, doing a church bulletin, which we had never done, and a couple things like that. And then we hired a guy to be a one-day-a-week youth pastor, and then he was a carpenter, and then he became two days a week and then three and then full-time. And then uh, gradually we ended up with three full-time paid staff besides myself. Mm. Uh, and uh, and that's and then we did that last several years. But uh, it, so, it was it was a great experience. And the people that were my associates or associates with me, they're still uh, all but one of them <laughs> is still. I had to remove him, but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, they're still my best friends. Man, stay. Well, we want to talk to you about pastoring then versus now as well. But before we do, I I want to have another follow-up question um we're talking about some things that maybe the church has done that you wish they continue to do and you've been pastoring or been in church institutions for a long time so are there things that you think are good changes that have happened uh over the over your tenure as as a pastor or working in church institutions oh yeah i i do think there's a lot of stuff that's good i and i think it, it was imperative for the church to uh to catch uh, uh, to try to partially, at least partway, keep up. I don't think church has ever been the lead, but uh, kind of keep up with uh, with the media uh, mm-hmm. changes with words and screens on the board and uh, or on the wall, and uh, uh, and you know uh, changing uh, you know changing music uh, has to has to happen. You can't just even though the hymns are all great, you can't just do all hymns and stuff like that. Um, but but here's here's an observa- another observation. Um, this was my generation, and we there used to be people would give you know testimonies in church. They'd even, even interrupt the sermon, uh, the pastor if he's getting ready to preach or something, and say, "Hey, can I say something? You know what God did in my life this week or whatever." And though and those were interesting times to listen. And then, and then sometimes you'd have a scheduled time where people would share their testimonies. You'd have a praise night or whatever at church where you'd sing songs and give testimonies. And some people would give the testimony every time at the same time. You know, 45 years ago, <laughs> I was living in sin, and God saved me and changed my life. And, and so our, my generation said, you know what? I don't want to know what God was doing 45 years ago. I want to know what God is doing this week. Hmm. And then, then we would get up and preach and say, Two thousand years ago, this is what happened. You know? <laughs> and, so, and so I like man. That I, as I've been thinking about, it, I think, man, that's really inconsistent. You don't want to know what God was doing forty-five years ago, but you want to know what He was doing two thousand years ago. And and then the hymns, you know, they're from the seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds, nineteen hundreds, and so they're no good anymore because because they're old. And and I'm thinking, you know what? That's, that's what God did during that time. He gave Charles Wesley, you know, Fanny Crosby, these people, he gave them words to songs, to uh, praises. And we don't want to hear that anymore, but it's all part of God's story. And I think that's one of the things that we don't do well. We don't listen to what God's story is from our people. Hmm. We, we need to hear more about what God is doing in their lives. And I, I think it'll, it would help the younger people. And I, I know the millennials and Gen Xers that I knew at Point Loma, they like to hear people's story. Which is ironic because that's literally what podcasts are most of the time. It's just a more 
technologically savvy version of of uh testimony time for us at least that's what it kind of seems like in some ways we're just having people share their stories so that's really interesting because that's i think what makes people want to listen is they want to hear someone else's story what's been going on in their lives why they're in the church what god has been doing and i think i think that's awesome i think it's a super interesting observation and uh, man i'm gonna have to chew on it more because i don't know i don't know what i think about that uh specifically with what i'm gonna do with it like i think i agree with you and i guess in modern day church dumb what what we do what young people a lot of times want to do is create small groups or you know have like table discussions but i don't know if that completely replaces uh what you're talking about so i I don't know well it would if those table discussions are are cross-generational yeah uh, or intergenerational where the young people could hear the old people's stories and and uh, and the old people could hear the young people's stories about what God's doing in their life. And that, that would stop a lot of old uh, people from getting crotchety. If they, hear what, <laughs> if they hear what God's doing in a young person's life, they get thrilled by that. Yeah. So we have... Oh, good. No, you go for it. I was going to say, so we've talked about this a little bit on this podcast before, the idea of story. And I one of the things I tend to rail about is the lack of intergenerational churches. Um. Like there's things about the the way the church functions that drives me crazy as a someone who was a pastor and is still a you know a part of a church, um, but I'm not one of those people who's like oh I'm just going to go off to this other this trendy church where there's all these people my age and the music's exactly what I want and the pastor's you know like only a few years older than me and he gets me. Um, that's an issue too because then we're missing out on the body of Christ. Right. We got too many people in the same situation. So we have to find a way to get back to that. But I think you're right. Story is something that I think our generation does crave. Like, why should I care about some story from 2000 years ago? Well, what I recall from churches when we heard a lot of testimonies and things was, how did this person from this long ago in our history affect my life whenever it happened? It could be 45 years ago for them or two weeks ago. How did that, that Christ who I've, I've read about my whole life, have an impact on someone's life recently and like is there hope for me to have that same connection and that change in my life i think that's what we are craving and i think a lot of churches are missing that i think Um, i agree i think i agree with that and that's a i think that's a really hard thing for us to if we don't get back to or figure out some way to share that intergenerational faith and be a part you know fellowship together then I don't know how the church is going to survive because we need to bring people in that don't necessarily think like us or act like us. And we need to be nice to each other too. That's a big part of it. But <laughs> well, I think a lot of times we just want to go off and do our own thing to like, instead of sharing, we want to take our toys and go home or whatever. I've, I've had so many conversations and I think, I don't think this is the intention, but I've seen a lot of uh, church plants that are kind of based on, well, I'm tired of these older folk that are not willing to, they're stuck in their ways. They're not willing to change. So I'm going to start something new. But then that kind of just turns into what you're talking about, Byron, where, you know, it's just like a whole bunch of people 30 and under, but you're totally missing out on one of the biggest elements of actually living in a community. And that's actually having a community of all ages. Um, and so 600, 600 churches, Ron, I mean, how many of those were established churches that had 
intergenerational interactions and how many of that was just church plants that seemed to only have one age group represented? Well, both. And here's another observation. And actually, we have statistics to back it up. Over a 13-year period, no, 11-year period, we studied uh, the uh, new church starts, uh, the ones that had just started for one reason or another and whatever. And there were 77 of them across the region, which was Point Loma region, which was uh, Hawaii, California, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and a little panhandle of Texas, and a little bit of uh, Nevada. Um, and so we, we looked at, at all the ones we could get statistics for, and we could get statistics for 77. We didn't get all the districts to participate, so we, there were probably more. But of the 77, after 11 years, there were two uh, well, let me qualify that of the ones who had a changed from their original pastor. Uh, some of mm. them were more than 11 years old, but they still had that original pastor. But yeah. of the churches that started, however they started, and they had changed from their original pastor, there were only two that were healthy churches. Wow. Uh, so out of, out of 77. 77. That's, that's kind of incredible. So what do you think that says what does the research well, say well i don't know and, and i gave it to the sociologists in our church in the denomination church of the nazarene but the sociologists didn't want to deal with it because the oh, denom- no. well we, the <laughs> denomination is pushing church plants yeah and so if they came up with stats that said maybe we shouldn't be doing this then they would be going against the, the direction that the leaders are wanting to go so i don't know what will become of that but Anyway, yeah. I gave them the statistics. I, there were a couple things that we did notice. Um, the ones that, uh, that were survived uh, were connected to the other Nazarene churches. Hmm. Um, they weren't all by themselves out there. They Got really it. were connected to it and to the other things. They participated in the summer camps and they did whatever. They had like a did, sister church or something like that? Yeah, too, the or? district churches, yeah. The other yeah. ones that did their own thing, when the lead pastor left, they kind of fell apart. And some of them had gotten really big. One of them was in Arizona, and I think it was called Family Church, and it had gotten up to five or 600. But when the original pastor left, it wasn't just a year, a couple of years, and they disbanded. They were no longer existent. Wow. But, but um, that was one of the things. Um, the other one was the ones that started that eventually got their own facility, where they could have church, they could have church gatherings and church meetings all week long. Uh, they, they, they were those two that survived were those kind of ones. Hmm. There were a couple others that were still alive with 30, 40 people hmm. and uh, paying the bills and making ends meet, but they really weren't healthy churches. But, uh, but it was interesting that for, uh, for the, in, in the structure of the Church of the Nazarene, in order for them to survive, they needed to be together more than just once a week Even for a worship service where they rented a facility and set up the chairs and did their thing. Now, other, other groups can do that and, and be very successful with it. For whatever reason, the Church of the Nazarene hasn't been successful doing that. So other groups, you mean like other denominations or just other? Yeah, well, they don't, a lot of them don't call themselves denominations, you know, like okay. the rock and a church, you know. Got they, it, they, yeah. ended up, they ended up, they're successful, but they ended up with facilities. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and that's the church in San Diego, right? That's one of the ones. Yeah, but they're all over the place now. They have, you know, they're, they're like a denomination. Like Calvary Chapel was non-denominational. Yeah. But it's a denomination, basically. They have their own Bible school and so on and so forth. But anyway, I don't know all the reasons 
but I did notice that that those churches that kind of had a a focal point that after eleven years they weren't there anymore. Hmm. If if they if their lead pastor changed, that's crazy. Well, there, I, to me, all I can say in response is it seems to have to do with the level of community or established community, I guess that yeah. that comes as a result of of those church plants. Cause if the ones that are more established, it seems like they're established in one of the, the ways you could tell the signs that they were established was that they had some sort of facility that was theirs to, to use whenever. Um, but that's really interesting to me. Huh? Yeah. Well, I continue to talk about church Denver's now. I, I want to shift gears slightly because I'm really curious what it was like to become a pastor. Um, when you first became a pastor, you know, what it was like to go through school, what, what educational requirements were there. Um, compared to maybe kind of what me and Byron had. And so to do that, let me just share maybe some of what it felt like for me and Byron coming out of school. Um, you know, you, you have to go to school. The The most standard way to do it was to go and get a four-year degree, especially if you're in our denomination. Um, you go and get your uh, your major, and then you, you have to go and get the different levels of licensing. But the big thing that I have continued to ponder today, especially now that I'm a lead pastor, is, the expectation for us coming out of school, whether it was undergraduate or seminary, was to get an associate pastor role. It was kind of unheard of for someone to come out of school, whether they were coming out of undergraduate or seminary, and jump right into a lead pastor role. People would ask a lot of questions. So that particular um, experience <laughs> is something that I'm curious if that's, if that's always been the case, um, if that was the case for you, or if, or if something has changed along the lines. Well, I think there may have been a change, but for me, I was planning to be an English teacher. Oh, okay. And so I, my, my major is English literature. And th that's one of the reasons that editing your book was so challenging. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, sorry. So, sorry again, Ron. <laughs> oh, no, I enjoyed it. I loved, I loved the book. Everybody should read this and the uh the millennial pastor every every new pastor beginning every old pastor retiring should read it i think it's a must read it's a great book well thank you ron but uh not but in it was, it, short it was, part it, because of you it was um, interesting yeah, you a lot. <laughs> when my i was nearly done with school and i felt called to be a youth pastor and so i went to seminary because i didn't have any of the bible classes or any of that kind of training so I went to seminary. When I got there, everybody knew all this stuff. I didn't know anything. I, you know, I didn't know what apocryphal writings were, or Petrine epistles, or Johannine writings, you know, and uh, synoptic gospels. They mentioned all this stuff, and I was like, "What in the world is all this? Is this Greek?" <laughs> and uh, but I but I stayed with it, learned it, and uh, and it was a fabulous experience for me. So when I came out of seminary, I was planning to be a youth pastor my whole life, and uh, I did it for two years. And then had a child and then thought, you know, I can't be doing that stuff every Friday night and Saturday night. That's kind of what we did back then. And um, and so uh, and I liked preaching and I didn't get to preach very much as an associate. And my my lead pastor, who was it was a very special person in my life, really trained me. Uh, his name was Tom Goble. And uh, he said, look, Ron, if you want to preach, you need to just go be take a church as a pastor. And so anyway, through a process, I, I, you know, my, I didn't put my name out anywhere, but he, I think he did. And I got calls, a couple of calls I interviewed and finally ended up going up to Morro Bay and, uh, 
California, and that's where I pastored there for 17 years. And I just felt it was God's will, took a big cut in pay from what I was making as an associate and, um, and started off at that little church. And for me, that, would, uh, that associate training was very valuable because of the senior pastor that I trained with. That, that was the key. And I think that's a good training. That's a good, I think it would be even a good requirement for anybody going to become a lead pastor uh, to, to be trained by someone who is a good lead pastor. And uh, I think it would be a good requirement. It's not. Um, most of the time, a lot of the, a lot of guys, when they're associates, they learn what not to do. <laughs> yeah. As pastors, if I'm ever a lead pastor, I will never treat my staff this way. You know, and, but that wasn't my case. I, I learned how to be a lead pastor from my lead pastor. So it, I, I don't know if my experience, it was typical. Uh, there were some uh, guys uh, and, and gals who graduated when I did, who became a lead pastor right away, hmm. uh, right out of seminary. Um, there were some who, be, who did that right out of college as well. I think the ones that went to seminary actually had a more uh, pleasing uh, experience at becoming a pastor than the ones who came right out of, coll- uh, out of college. And of course, you don't even have to do that. You don't have to go to college to, to do that. I do think that there's a real plus to that because of the, the interaction you have. And that's one of the drawbacks with online uh, education is you don't have the time to discuss these things with others. And I think that was really healthy for me. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but yeah, well, yeah. I'm, just, I'm rattling around in my head some stats because I just keep pondering one of the biggest stats that we shared on one of our Facebook pages was that, the average age of Nazarene clergy now is, well, not the average age, sorry, the actual, what the, and this is from our, our pensions and benefits, the people that handle the retirement of pastors. So you would, you would assume they know um, the largest age group in our denomination clergy wise is 65 plus. Yeah. I, I, th- I think that's true. Yeah. And if you look, I think it's Barna. Um, they, they said the average age of the pastor has gone up um, every decade. And once upon a time, the average age, and it might have been before the 90s, uh, or maybe it was the 90s, the average age of a lead pastor was, you know, early 40s, late 40s, or something like that. So uh, just, I'm, I guess I'm just kind of pondering what may have happened along the way, because I, I have some speculations about the whole role as an associate. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I also think it has something to do with the fact that a lot of young people, do not have relationships with their lead pastor. Hmm. And so, so they're not, they're not desiring to go into the pastor because they don't know the pastor. And so that's, and I think a whole lot of the pastors, well, here's another study we did of the large, the hundred largest churches in our region. Uh, the, uh, of those who were associates was like 98%. So they the pastors, started off as an associate. They you mean? started off as associate and ended up pastoring a larger church. <laughs> uh, down, I mean, down the, as time went by, and we asked that some of them, and someone said, "Well, I learned what not to do, you know, when I was associate, and that's part of the reason I've had a successful pastorate with associates, because most of these hundred largest churches have associates and some several, but they all had served as associates themselves, all those lead pastors." 
there was only one pastor in that 100, and there was one district superintendent who had not been uh, wow. associates. And both of that, the the uh, uh, the both of them are no longer in ministry. What the the lead pastor left the ministry. He was a done. And huh. after, mm. after, after a time, he was in one of our largest churches. And then the other was a district superintendent who retired. So anyway, after that, it was 100% of the 100 largest churches that all been associates. So I have a question then based on your story and some of the stuff you're just sharing. Um, and I, this, this question is partially because of my personal experience and a lot of experience I've heard from other millennial pastors. Um, when we go into ministry, a lot of us don't feel like we have a quality mentor, right? Like someone who really takes us under their wing and says, Hey, like I, I mean, we have pastors who try to be good bosses or, you know, try to find ways to lead people. Like most of my pastors that I worked for hadn't really had a lot of associates underneath them. So they weren't always the best bosses anyway. Right. And they definitely, I never, none of my, my lead pastors were mentors to me. Right. At least not from my perspective. Maybe they thought they were mentoring me, but no, I doubt that's it. not the feel that I got. And I, I, I felt like I was held, you know, at a certain length away from them. And I think part of it's the car- compartmentalization of ministry, but it also it just seems like sometimes lead pastors are just like, you know, we didn't really. Now, this is my opinion. Like, I'm not saying it's what they actually think, but a lot of them think that they, they didn't get a good education from another like a mentor it was a uh, like you said. This is what not to do, and it's kind of like a you just got to figure it out yourself. Instead yeah. of fixing the problem and helping the next generation learn to pastor better, it's a uh, well, I didn't get any help, so why should you? Kind of a thing. I agree with that. And Tom Goble was a great mentor to me. Just he took me under his wing when he went to hospital calls. He'd say, "Come with me. I want you to, you know, see this, do this, so you know what what happens." And he would talk to me about it, and uh, and I learned so much. And he he gave me opportunities and experiences. And then when I became a pastor, I did that too. And there, there's 22 people that have gone into full time ministry that were in the church where I was pastor or youth pastor. Hmm. That because there was there was mentoring that went from me down to them. And there's one of the guys that was associate with me is now district superintendent. And he tells me every time he sees me, everything I learned, I learned from you. you know? <laughs> and, he, and then and then he and I say, well, I learned that from Tom Goble. And so anyway, but he tells me that every time I see I saw him, I just did a funeral service here, memorial service uh, last weekend, not this last weekend, but the weekend before. And he was there and he said, man, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate what I learned, you know, but I, that's there are some people who are good mentors. And we need them to mentor others. I mean, Tom Goble also in mentor was a mentor to Dan Cobb, who's one of our mm-hmm. denominational <laughs> leaders. And I mean, the there there are people who are out there who do that job well, but I think a lot of them don't do it well because they weren't they weren't given that opportunity themselves. They don't know how to do it. I I may have had kind of a different experience than some associates. Um, I know me and Byron have had some similar experiences. Maybe it's because of our, maybe it's our personality, Byron. Maybe that's the issue. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I've seen, because the polity, I think, are the, the NAS rules, or I guess I would say the strong NAS suggestion is that the senior pastor kind of is the default mentor for their associate pastor, whether they're a youth or 
children's pastor or worship pastor. Right. That's that's kind of what it's supposed to be like, uh, I guess. Um, however, what I've experienced is kind of the opposite, where the the lead pastors seem to sometimes not all. And you know, I'm I'm mostly thinking of one right now, and no, Byron, I won't tell you which one it is, so don't ask. Coward. Um, <laughs> um uh they saw me as competition i guess oh, yeah. um and, and so like you know whether it was a oh i don't want you to preach because of this side or the other i don't want you to be a part of this wedding or the, i don't want to take the time to because it was just you know a lot of pastors seem to have this um review-based mentality which doesn't help that we actually have reviews regularly in the denomination as a lead pastor you go through you get a review after two years on the job and then you're on a four-year rotation of every four years depending on your ds and your board you might have a really unpleasant four-year every four-year two-hour session where they have to review your stats like literally go over your statistics yeah. so um i don't know if that's played a part in it in in my uh you know 10 years an associate because i've had good times but i've also had lots of frustrating times where it was almost intentional where they didn't want to give me too much too many opportunities to to learn to to do the the things that you need to yeah. learn to do to become a lead pastor yeah that's unfortunate i don't you know it could be insecurities it could be them not knowing what to do i don't know but I, you know i i was so blessed to have a good experience and so i don't know um you know i don't know that other side of it i just uh, i never had that well do you think it would help if it was like a denominational requirement well i th i think it would uh, if they but they need to train the, the mentor to train the leaders and 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 i think it would be a good uh, requirement to to have to do an associate role where you are with the role of being trained as an associate not giving a job you're the youth pastor go do the youth thing but mm. be trained as a pastor I think yeah. that, like a, like a, a doctor goes through internships, you know, Absolutely. they, they learn and some, sometimes they learn bad things and sometimes they learn good <laughs> things, but you know, uh, it's just, they have to do it. They do residency and all that stuff. I think it's a great, that's a great well, thing, but it has to be a good teacher. And I do know that some districts have tried to deal with this problem with varying success. Like, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but the Arizona district for a while at least required you to have a mentor. I think they yeah. still do this. Yeah, the I mean, only issue that I've seen is like if you're in the Phoenix metro area, it's pretty great. You meet with your mentor in person semi-regularly. You talk about things. You can learn from them. Um, but if you're in an area like ours where there's not that many churches in our area that are Nazarene, yeah. like I, I know our youth pastor, his mentor – I, I believe was in the Mesa area or somewhere pretty decently far away. And he never really saw him. Right. They would That's communicate like online or on the phone, but like he wasn't really being mentored right. because they didn't have a real good personal relationship. Yeah. Not that there was any, like it wasn't that either of them were bad or just not trying. There's just too much distance. So if your senior pastor or your lead pastor, your boss isn't a good leader, then how do you learn from that? It's just a, that's a practical issue. I think we have to find ways to get through and I don't have a solution necessarily. I will say my experience was similar to what Josiah was describing. And of the three churches I worked at, I worked for three different lead pastors. Two of them are no longer in ministry and it makes sense to me as why they're not. 
Right. And they're not, they're not helping other people get into ministry. Like um, there's one of one associate I worked with under one of those pastors is, is a pastor and she finished her, her education and, and is a, a lead pastor. But it was also more of a, this is how not to deal with staff. This is how not to deal with people in my congregation. She, I'm sure she's a phenomenal pastor because she's a great person. But I think when I've talked to her, she learned what not to do from our boss. And that's unfortunate. We heard that. We heard that when we talked to those hundred largest churches. We heard that several times that I learned what not to do, which is not, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, I, I wish there was a way. And, and some denominations may have that. I don't know. I hope so. But uh, there, there needs to be relationship with people who intentionally uh, sacrifice their time in order to help someone else. Um, and there's a little saying I always had with uh, the, youth, the, the, youth, the leaders of the student ministries at Point Loma. I used to always tell them, you know, uh, sacrifice is is seldom convenient mm. <laughs> it's that's it, true and uh and and kept my wife says it's never convenient <laughs> but uh but it, it the uh being a servant well, i didn't say sacrifice being a servant is seldom convenient and uh and because being a servant requires sacrifice and it's never convenient but being a servant is seldom convenient, and but a person who is going to be a mentor needs to be a servant to the person mm. they are mentoring. And if there's if there's a way that they they have that attitude and that spirit of servanthood, and they can, it won't be convenient to do it. I guarantee it. But it'll be a good no. thing in the long run. Because their book is going to be full of a crazy amount of typos, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like like a crazy amount. I think you told me one of my chapters had 500 typos or something absurd. But. Well, I'm sure that couldn't be the case. <laughs> 498. Okay. <laughs> well, well, one final thought question for you, Ron, as we kind of wrap up this podcast, because I'm, I'm really curious. I don't know. I'm really curious what you'd say about this. But I, I guess from a, from a perspective of a young person, it doesn't seem like many want to mentor so why do you specifically um seem to love or want or desire to invest in young people particularly given the quote you just gave what what is it about ron that makes ron want to mentor byron's and josiah's it's people in my life like tom goble Hmm. who mentored me i'm so in debt um i i you know, we just get things confused sometimes. This this has nothing to do with the question you just asked, but I wrote it down and I wanted to share it. Uh, this this was uh, one of the one of the guys, Tom Neese, who used to be a, a leader in our church. He he told me his dad, who was a college president, told him uh, about these guys, and he he was a uh, this Tom Neese was in that fifties and sixties where the people were leaving, right and left. They were just you know getting out of the church. And, and his dad said, uh, Tom, one of the things I've noticed is you guys laugh about the things you should cry about and you cry about hmm. the things that you should laugh about. And hmm. he said, and his case was, you see somebody drunk and you think that's hysterical. That should break your heart. And uh, he, it, Tom told me this just not too long before I retired. 
And I thought about it. I thought, man, that is a great statement. You laugh about the things you should cry about and you cry about the things you should laugh about. Hmm. And, uh, and that, that's a, that's a, you know, generation before me or a half a generation before me. But, you know, I, what, what you, what you guys are asking me, I, I, these are questions that need to be asked there need and they need to be dealt with not just questions and and now you have a question out there but we need to find answers to some of these things that change things and uh we need to change we need to have people invest in the lives of young people who are mentored even if they don't know they're being mentored they're just maybe they just think they're being loved Mm-hmm. And uh, in that in that process, they learn. And uh, I I, do, I have so much hope uh, for the future. Uh, like reading your book, Josiah, <laughs> it gave me hope that there are there are young people out there, young pastors who are willing to listen to some of the stupidity of church members <laughs> and, and 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 love them anyway, and then figure out. And then this is something else Tom Doble told me. He said, Ron, when there's something, a little axiom that he said he lived by, and that was, in all criticism, there is some validity. Mm-hmm. So don't shake it off or you know, think they're stupid or whatever. Just figure out what's valid, what part of that is valid, and, and deal with that. But it, it helped me my whole life because I always welcomed criticism. Uh, and a lot of times it was, like he said, out of proportion. And by the time you hear it, it's just way out of the proportion. But what is it that is valid in that? And don't be defensive. Learn from it. Hmm. And that helped me a lot. And I, there's great hope for me with guys like you for the future. Because you are listening to people. And and you're giving them a shot. And, and regardless of how stupid they might be or how <laughs> crazy it might seem to be with what they have to share, you're listening and you're, and you're, you're not just listening and shrugging it off. You're paying attention. And I, I think it's great. Well, thanks Ron for that. Uh, final thought. If there's, if there's anybody out there that's kind of maybe thinking they should be a mentor or someone that's thinking about being mentored, do you have any final thought about why or a step they could take or just a simple, yeah, do it. You, this is how, is there any, I mean, you've mentored a lot of people. Is there, is there like a first step someone could take? What's a, what's a really uh, non-confrontational, well, not that's not even a good word, but just a really easy step a person could take to enter into a mentoring relationship? Well, well, that's a good question. I, I think just value the other person, value and consider them that they're worth your time. Hmm. Hmm. That's well, full circle to our stereotype thing. <laughs> oh my goodness! Don't just label things. People have names. Know them. They're valuable. Wow. What so were you gonna I, say, Byron? I just want to say thank you for coming on. And I mean, this is a a podcast predominantly for millennials. But I mean, and that was our first season. We talked to millennials about what's going on in their, their lives. But I do know that like there are people at Point Loma who weren't our professors, um, who didn't actually have to have relationships with us who built them anyway because they valued us and cared and wanted to see us be successful in ministry and just in life in general. And there's a ton of them. I I couldn't even name them all, but like you were one of those people that like, you didn't have to get to know students, you know, like, I mean, 
that really wasn't well, by the time we were there anyway. That wasn't really your role. You you were going out reaching out to churches and like, but you still got to know us. You, you got to know people who were training and learning, and and you you decided to take an interest in our lives. Um, and then there's other people too, like Joe Watkins comes to mind. Yeah, he didn't have to hang out with me or talk to me ever. Like his his job was not to be there to to teach me anything or just be a friend to me, but he did it all the time. Every time I saw him, we had a great conversation and like, you know, that's the kind of thing I I think the church in general needs to have is more people who are older, who are wiser and willing to say, Hey, you have the energy, you have the, the passion. Let's work together and do something well, let's do it well, but also do something good for the world. And that's why you need the intergenerational uh, part of the church. So thank you for coming on and rep- representing that for us. And just personally in my life, thank you for caring. You know, you've, you've been an awesome ex- like person to know, and I love hanging out with you. And I'm glad you're so close to me now locally where I get to see you on a regular basis. But thank you for coming on and representing your generation well and telling us there's more to learn. Well, thanks. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks also personally, uh, echoing everything Byron said, but also adding one thing to it. Thanks for answering the phone when I call and I start off with, okay, Ron, this is what happened. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many times I've done that, but every time you've had an open ear and you give very good advice, feedback, uh, you know, I've always valued the mentoring relationship and just the friendship that that we have with you. Um, so thank you for being on this podcast and just thank you for being awesome, Ron. All right. We appreciate you. Okay, he is risen. He is risen risen indeed. So for for our listeners, as we wrap up this podcast, a few final reminders. If you like this show, feel free to rate and review it. Leave us some constructive criticisms if you need to, or just share that you're listening. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us on all the places on all the that we have a website, we have all the things. But generally speaking, if you like to hear what millennials and now their mentors or their friends that are nuns and duns, what they think you like hearing about their faith-based work or what is going on in culture pertaining to church, then please join us next time on the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. I'm your co-host, Byron. Until next time, we'll see you later.